All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, continuing our study in eschatology, the study of end times. We have put, uh, put quite a bit into this study. Of course, now we're, we're really in the thick of it. And for several weeks, though recognizing some of those weeks go back to last year, depending on how circumstances worked out, several weeks talking about the tribulation. And so, we're, that, again, it's kind of in, in the, the meat of what happens at the end. So just, just keep in mind my particular approach to end times. It, it would, is, is what is called premillennial. Uh, and so I do take the, the text of Revelation to be, to be largely narrative and in order. What, what I mean by that is, it is giving me a series of events that will unfold at some point in the future. It is doing so with heavy and rich symbolic language. So, so we do have to unpack a lot, uh, but, but I would contend it is, it is speaking to actual events that will unfold largely in the order that they are described here in the book. Uh, and so that distinguishes me from millennialists and post-millennialists, and we're not going to go into that, though I, I, I will unpack those terms when we actually get to the portion of the end times when we talk about the millennial kingdom, all right? So if, if the, those, I know those words might seem a bit unfamiliar, especially if you weren't with us from the beginning, uh, but just, just as a reminder, this is how I am, pro, am approaching the book of Revelation, how I'm approaching this study. And we're not going through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation, uh, but looking at kind of the broader um, issues related to how God will bring His history to an end. So we're in this period we call the tribulation, which I believe is reserved for a seven-year period of time, I think at the very end of human history as we know it, the end of the earth's history as it is now, there is a final seven-year period of time that really kind of has two purposes. One purpose is the revelation of God through His wrath, God's revelation of Himself in wrath that is poured out in a global way. It is going to be unmistakable. But then at the same time, I think the, the, the end times is also God fulfilling His promises. So it is a revelation of him and his wrath. It is also a revelation of him as a, as a promise-keeping God. And these promises going way back, right, going way back to Old Testament texts uh, and not just prophet texts. I mean, going even, even back as far as Genesis chapter 3. We need the head of the serpent to be fully and finally crushed. Yes, the crucifixion and resurrection was in part fulfillment of that promise, but he is still alive and well, right? The serpent is still speaking lies and leading God's people astray, an accuser of the brethren, uh, prowling to and fro across the earth to see who he he may devour is how the Bible describes him. So we recognize that what's going on here at the end is also going to be a, a, a fulfillment of God's promises as it relates uh, to the vanquishing of evil in, in all of its forms. 
But, but with that, I, again, would remind us, because when you go talking about end times, you can, boy, you can get a lot of passion uh, out of folks, and folks can get really tied in to their, their per- particular path. And so I always, I always want to make sure that, that here, what we're going to have is what I would call you know, some, some exegetical humility, meaning the way we study the text, as long as we are coming to the Word of God as the Word of God, and our commitment is to it, to God and His Word, being faithful to what He has shared, believing in it as inerrant and infallible and authoritative, there are good brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with how, I would te- how I'm teaching end times. Uh, you know, I think I've, I've shared before, there, there would be those like an R.C. Sproul, who, 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 if he were here in the gruffness and uh, you want to talk about snark and sass, uh, I don't hold a candle to R.C., all right, he would uh, certainly have a lot of questions if he were sitting here, uh, and I would, I would just cower in fear if that were the case, um, but, uh, but, but now the, the dear brother is in heaven and um, realizes my position's right, so... <laughs> No, but no, but in all serious. So you got somebody like you know, and and that would be you know there'd be a group of of those, uh, and I know we even have folks in our church you know who would take a different view of these things. So I want to make sure that you know that we have we have this this breadth of appreciation for those who would hold different positions who still love Jesus. They still think He rules and reigns, will return, and will call us all home. All right, so uh, so there are basic contours on which we agree. There are just some of these elements. And we can see why. I mean, you study a book like Revelation. We've been reading this stuff. There's just some really weird, strange things in here. There's no other way to describe it. There's just some weird, strange things in the book of Revelation. So, you know, we, we, take, it, uh, we, we take it again with a, with a bit of humility as we study. So, again, we're in the midst of the tribulation, noting that really the, the, the main thing going on in the tribulation is a, is a series of three waves of judgment identified in the book of Revelation as the opening of seals, first wave. Second wave, the sounding of trumpets. Third wave, the pouring out of bowls. And that this, these take place in the midst of the seven-year period we call the tribulation. They're, they're not necessarily like one after another, meaning you've got three months of seal number one and then three months of seal number two, and then it doesn't work out with that kind of precision and calendar, Instead, what I think is happening is the seal judgments are occurring over the first three and a half years, with the second wave and third waves coming in the midst of the last half of the tribulation. So, we've already talked about the seal judgments. Last week, we finished, we finished, them, uh, finished off then this interlude we had where chapter 7... And I used it as an example. It's something that, that comes up in the book of Revelation. A- after we have these moments of intense description of judgment, then we often have this word of encouragement uh, designed, I think, for God's people to, re- to remember that, yes, while God is a God who will pour out His wrath on an unbelieving world, He is a God who keeps His promises in the gospel. All right, so we see this going back and forth. All right, so we- we've been in the words of encouragement, God's faithfulness in chapter 7. But now we're back into judgment, all right? So chapter 8, we noted, kicks off, and we've already looked at the first six verses here, but just as a refresher to us, remembering that when the seventh seal is open, that is then the unleashing of the seven trumpets judgment. 
And so we, we see in verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So these six verses, that's pretty heavy, that's pretty heavy dose of drama, right? I mean, that, 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 even just reading it, it, it you, you sense already something dramatic is happening because heaven goes silent, which is a really striking image. We talked about this last Sunday night. That's just really striking to me because every other image we've had of heaven, like going back to chapter 5, every other image you have is this continual song, this continual uh, exclamation of, of praise and glory being offered to God by, by the angels, by the elders, by the multitudes, and then silence. That, that, again, so that, that's, a, that's just a pretty tense kind of moment. And so John says he sees seven angels being, being prepped with seven trumpets, and then we have this other angel who goes to the, to the golden censer and, and stands at the altar, given incense, and we, we see him then taking fire from the altar, casting it on the earth. I think this is the fulfillment of the prayers of the martyrs. The martyrs had prayed out for justice. They'd asked for justice. And I think then this is, this is part of the fulfillment of that prayer, as, as then this, this, is, this is like a precursor to, this is the seed, seeding the earth for the judgment to come, so to speak. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. These, by the way, are not associated necessarily. I mean, it is kind of the seventh seal tr- being opened. That These aren't necessarily specific directed judgments. This is almost like another declaration. More is coming. Keep in mind, we went through the sealed judgments. They were intense. Uh, there, it was a significant... Uh, series of events, but, but now it's going to get even more intense. Now, we won't, and we won't go back through it, but just in terms of keeping the timing of this, part of our study, we've already talked about the Antichrist, and we've talked about the abomination of desolation. So in terms of, the, of how things are taking place, I think this has happened. I think it's described afterwards, all right? And it's one of the ways in which the book of Revelation does have some jump in, in, the, in the, the, the narrative that's being told. But I think that's happened. So this one we identified as the Antichrist has established himself as God to be worshipped. And so this unleashes what the Bible describes as the great day of God's wrath. So this is what is to come in, in, the, in the trumpet judgments and then in the bold judgments. Now, before we then jump into laying out the trumpets as we have here in chapter 8, are there, are there questions, clarifications thus far? Are there a thousand questions and we don't have time to ask and answer them all, perhaps? Yes. 
<clears throat> Michael. Just a clarification, and I'm sure you've already co covered it, but uh, those seal judgments all, are, are, you, are you making the point that the seal judgments all start up after the rapture? They're all post-rapture, or in other words, you're look, looking at the seal judgments having come after the rapture has already occurred? Yeah, yes, I, I, I have argued for a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, again, though, recognizing, um, you know, that, that's, that's one of those topics that um, I really hope I'm right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I, would. I really hope I'm right. Well, <laughs> uh, I know that sounds really selfish for my sake. I mean, if I am in, gone in glory, I won't care. But, uh, but really, for any believer who is around, yes. Uh, and I do think, I do think there is um, you know, a solid argument to be made. At the same time, I understand, especially those who are post-tribulation, um, which really wouldn't make it a rapture in the same sense that the pre-trib rapture is. Uh, so there's some, there are some differences, but they're, you know, we're talking about the same event. But yes, the way I have taught it is uh, the rapture has occurred. Um, the reason I say that is there, there are variations even among premillennialists about the timing of the rapture, even beyond simply pre-trib and post-trib. You know, oh, oh yeah. Then there's, there's a mid-tribulation view. There's even a far lesser-known mid-wrath view. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's right. There, there are these, um, these variations among it, but, uh, but I, I have taught, I call it traditional, meaning, you know, what probably what many in a Baptist context would, would have been taught. Um, to. Well, I was always taught as well, I, although I've kind of switched my views a little bit over the time of the rapture. Sure. I, again, I think the pre-trib is a strong argument in Scripture for that, and I don't know that the time of the rapture, I don't know that I'd want to go to the chopping block over the timing of the rapture. Oh, for sure. Because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things in there where it, it could I can see the arguments on the other side of it, too. Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Yeah. All right. So, we'll jump into it. Again, it's, it's really a part of, I think, of, uh, uh, of how Revelation presents this outpouring of God's wrath that is somewhat straightforward. In other words, it just gives us one after another after another, <clears throat> though we may unpack exactly what is, what is happening in the midst of them. So verse 7, so the first trumpet is, uh, is sounded, and verse 7, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So, you know, there, there, are, there are a couple of explanations that are given. How does God do this? Well, hail itself, hail intermingled with fire. Uh, and, and for those who may say, well, I mean, is, is he speaking literally? Well, I only have one other story that talks about hail being intermingled with fire. And it was, and it was literal. So yeah, so I take that literally. So that's, you know, this, this echoes what story? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, I guess, yeah, but I'm thinking, I was thinking more Egypt. I was thinking more of the plagues and, and the plague of, of, of hail and fire falling. Uh, though, yes, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, might, it might have, a, have an echo of that as well. So, so we, we do have, you know, this is, 
as evidence in Scripture or something that God has done. Now, rather than it being directed at a particular, say, city or a particular nation, we, we have it being thrown down to earth. You know, the, the, the tricky language here is, is saying mingled with blood. Um, and and what, what does that mean? What does that, what does that look like? I, you know, at this point, I, I would contend, because again, the only other thing I have to go on would be something like what happened in Egypt. Does this mean that blood falls from the sky, or has God done something then to the, to the water? Now, water's going to come up again in a later judgment, uh, but I, I, I don't think, because this would be really weird, it's already weird enough that fire falls from heaven. And what I mean is, I mean, mysterious and profound and striking. I don't think it's raining blood, all right? Uh, nor do I think that it's a ball of fiery blood, uh, which would be a lot to take, all right? I mean, if that's what's going on, then, then wow. Um, I, I, I think it, is, it provides more of, a, of an image of what is to come as a result of hail and fire um, coming down and this being thrown to the, to the earth uh, and then saying that a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Some have also contended this could be a volcanic eruption or a series of global eruptions that go on, which would certainly fit the imagery here of what's being stated I think what's important to note is, is just that, you know, a third of the trees being burned up and all of the green grass being burned up. And, and, and we, we're going to see that this first set, much like the seal judgments, we have this first few sets of judgments, trumpets, that are going to, to deal with the creation itself. And once we get through them, I'll have a comment to make about that because I think, it, I think it's a significant part of the story. All right, all right, so this first judgment is, is sounded, and uh, you know, we, we, we have this cataclysmic event. It would have been terrifying. And would there be ramifications of a third of the trees and the green grass being burned? We no longer have pretty views. Is that what the problem would be? No, I mean, I think we see the beginning of, of a real. You, you, you want to talk about environmental issues. Yeah, Revelation 8 is going to give us some real environmental issues. I mean, we're talking, un, un, at this point, undeniable um, impacts on the environment, the, 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 the way in which we live on the planet. So that, that, that's just then increased in the second one. Keep in mind, again, these don't have a timing. A couple of them will. They'll say, this happens for five months. But we don't know how long verse 7 takes. We don't know how long it is between verses 7 and 8, but it doesn't seem like there's much of a gap. However long verse 7 takes, does, does it happen in one day? Is it one event? Is it a series of events? I, I mean, I think you could contend for either. I don't, the text doesn't require, I think, one or the other. Uh, but I do think we should understand this as happening in a fairly clear succession of events. All right? Verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, 
and a third of the ships were destroyed. So, I mean, many of you have studied this, this stuff before. What does that sound like? I mean, it sounds like, yeah, an asteroid meteor, I, I'm sure there's an actual difference and somebody in here may know it. That is not my realm, so I would not dare to venture into the astrophysics of that, all right? Uh, but yes, asteroid uh, of, some, of some kind, so a, a, something like a mountain burning with fire, uh, and when it says a third of the sea became blood, I, I would link that with the previous language of blood. I don't, I don't believe, since we already have a simile going on here, like, something is like something, I don't think it literally became blood, I think it became poisoned. Now, again, somebody could disagree and say, well, no, I, th- I think it literally turns to, to, to blood. That's fine. But, uh, we're not going to fuss about it, um, meaning, yes, that could be. I, I, I think, though, this, this is suggesting that, that which, which turns the waters uninhabitable. It, become, it, becomes, it becomes death. And that's what's described. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and as a result of this burning mountain, uh, a third of the ships were destroyed. You know, it's, it's interesting in hearing that language of, of the impact of ships being destroyed, g- given what we've had, had to deal with, right, with the, with the disruption of shipping over the last year. So, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a taste. I, I, I mean, a small and minor one, though, depending on what industry you work in, it could have been major disruption. Uh, but, you know, we, we recognize the impact this has had for whatever reasons that's happening, those aside, we're, we're, we're still a world that is dependent on somebody putting stuff on a boat and going across the water to get that boat to somebody else. It doesn't really matter what kind of boat it was, right? Obviously, the boats then are different than the boats now. But if, if, boat, if the boat can't get from A to B, it's a mess. And it doesn't matter if we're 2,000 years removed from when this text was written. I need the boat to get from A to B. If it can't get from A to B, if one of them gets stuck in the Suez Canal, well, then you got a problem, right? Uh, if if they were, one was to get stuck in the Panama Canal, we're going to have a problem. So you can, you can tell if a third of the ships are destroyed, then, then we are talking about a significant disruption to the nature of life. So we've got trees, we've got grass that has been burned, we have, we have living creatures in the sea, a third of them have died, a third of the ships are destroyed. All right, so then, then here comes another one. Verse 10, then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So, you know, if the other one is an asteroid, some have suggested this then is a comet, falling star, whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, a, a, but we, we, have, we have evidence of these things happening, right? We have, we have evidence of both of these kinds of, uh, of heavenly bodies getting through the atmosphere uh, and really creating issues. I mean, we don't have them all the time, but you read historic examples. I read, read about one in 1908 in Siberia that, that, that destroyed something like a thousand square miles of forest. 
Uh, and, and really, it doesn't take one of a whole lot of size, if it can get through the atmosphere, then, then to, to be destructive. So, to, to see one like a mountain, or again, to see this one, a great star, it doesn't identify its size, but you could bet by that modifier, a great star, that we're talking about, again, something of significant mass. And, but I, but I also, I want to make this clear, we are not talking about natural occurrences, this is divinely orchestrated. Because the one falls in the ocean. The other affects a third of the rivers and springs. How do you, how do you explain that naturally? Well, you wouldn't be able to. This, this is only God's divine intervention creating this set of circumstances. So, so that this specifically impacts then fresh water. And so the, the, the name Wormwood, just it, it is, it, it wasn't, it's an actual substance, a, a plant. It is poisonous. Uh, it induces something like drunkenness at first, and then you die if you, if you were to ingest too much of it. So it, it is a poison, and that's why then the waters become Wormwood. They become poisonous. And so men died because they drank from the water. So you've got salt water, you've got fresh water, you've got vegetation that has been impacted, <clears throat> you've, you've got living creatures in the ocean that has been impacted. But now we've got another one. And, and by the way, they, they, there is some, you know, uh, symmetry with the seal judgments that you have these, you know, the first four judgments ha- having impact on the on the earth, these, these also having specific impact, though they're different kinds. Verse 12, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So this fourth angel unleashes a disruption on the functioning of the solar system itself. I don't know any other way to put it. A, a, funct- a, a functioning of the, the rotation of the planet, uh, uh, the impacting then the, the, the function of the moon, impacting the function of the, of the stars, impacting the function of the sun. So, so all, all of these are impacted and there is then a period of time wh- where then they are reduced by a third. Do you see, by the way, uh, any kind of theme developing, right? A third, third has shown up. And so a third shows up here again. If you were to go back to the seal judgments, you'll see a fourth showing up, talking about a fourth of something being destroyed. Now we see a third. So what, what's more, a fourth or a third? Sorry to do this to you, right? Math. If I have a fourth of something or a third... Okay, a third, yeah. I'd rather have a third of a, uh, of a pound of gold than a fourth of a pound of gold, right? 
One's going to be more valuable than the other. All right, so this is describing something of greater intensity, and again, describing something that, that impacts the, the nature of life. So this, this would be a radical disruption, would it not? To have, you want to talk about an environmental impact. Now, there is some discussion on the length of how long does this last? Because re- really, if this were to last any length of time, the entire planet then would, the life on, on the planet in its entirety would be consumed, would not be able to survive any length of time under this set of circumstances. So it's suggested that this, this is not something that happens that then lasts for the rest three and a half years. It, it, it is a judgment, but that normalcy does return at some point, so that's, that is suggested. Uh, but that there is a period of time then when a third of the day does not shine, then the, a third of the moon does not work properly. And so we, we could imagine then the, the massive change in temperature uh, that, that would take place. You know, what would happen? We've already talked about a problem with the oceans. With, imagine what would go on there, um, n- not to mention then vegetation, that that's left, what, what it would do then just to the normal course of life. So it, it's pretty intense. These first four are pretty intense. Uh, and, and things that directly impact the planet itself. Now, here's where we begin to see, we probably saw it some in the seals, but I don't know that I brought it out, but it's important to bring this out here because this is going to get more intense. Part of what is going on in the book of Revelation is an undoing of creation, Right? We see how this begins here. So of a Genesis 1, and, and so it's not a surprise that we got this at the beginning and this at the end. So we have a Genesis 1, and we have a God ha- hanging the sun and hanging the moon and hanging the stars. We have a God creating then vegetation. We have a God create, separating the, 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 the heavens and, and above and below and creating the seas and fresh waters. And, you know, so we have this beautiful portrait in chapter 1. This, but that all gets badly broken and cursed because of the fall. So creation itself is being undone. This this is coming upon what God created, which is going to reach its climax when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So, so, So be on the lookout for this, because this is definitely a theme, this undoing and recreating then of of what, what was done in the Garden of Eden. So we're, we're going to stop there and see if there's any questions, comments, discussion. But because these first four um, have some similarities here. You know, they're, they're all dealing with stuff on the earth. When we, get, when we get to five, six, and seven, they are distinct. And I'll mention that in just a minute. June. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Revelation would, would, would give the picture that the Antichrist is still then the global earthly power to, to, what, what, to whatever kind of organization there, there is on the planet. You know, I think what, what happens really quickly and what we'll see here, you know, the planet is in largely disarray and chaos. I mean, God, God is, is unleashing in an unquestionable way his wrath and judgment. But the Antichrist is still operating, still engaged, because we know that there's going to be the, um, the amassing of an army at the end to try and come against. So it's 
In a sort, yeah, yeah, of, of, of a sort, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the question's asked of, you know, if, if the rapture has occurred pre-tribulation, but we do have believers in the tribulation, uh, then where, where are they coming from? Uh, they, they are, there are converts. There are people being converted in the midst of the tribulation. And, and it would, would happen. There'd be a couple of ways this could be explained. One, we, we absolutely know from Jesus' own teaching. Say the church, for example, we've got parables that describe the church as being comprised of sheep and goats, uh, being, dis- being comprised of those who think they belong and cry out, Lord, Lord, and they didn't. And I, but they know the gospel. They have knowledge of the Bible. Bibles have not been removed, so they have knowledge of the Bible. They have knowledge of the gospel. And so I think there will be conversions among them. I think we also have Jews. Uh, I, I would contend, because I, I think this is how the apostles did it, the Old Testament is sufficient to lead somebody to the gospel. So the Jews will have then, uh, will be, I think there will be Jews who will be saved during this period of time. Who will then, so these folks will then serve in an evangelistic effort, who, who will then um, see a, a harvest of souls come during the tribulation. When you talk about the, the Jews becoming the evangelists, if you will, um, they won't recognize Revelation, they won't recognize anything in the New Testament until such time as they're converted? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I guess I, I don't know that I could say for sure what they would recognize when they see, ju- you know, when they see judgment coming. When they, would they be able to, to, to look at, in particular, some of the well, both major and minor prophets of the Old Testament that, that are going to have a lot of familiarity with what's being stated in some of Revelation. In other words, the apocalyptic nature of the literature would feel familiar to them. So I think um, upon either recognizing something's going on or conversion, their reading of the book of Revelation, I think they would be in a unique position to understand all of that, given their knowledge and understanding because it's just a part of their literature to begin with, apocalyptic literature. Uh, would they recognize it ahead of time? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, but, I, but I think there's probably some of those prophets in the Old Testament that they would have to stop and think, uh, hmm. How about that? <laughs> that? So this is what's going on, and this is happening now, uh, and that combined then with the work of the Spirit and their... Because the other thing, you know, there, there are plenty of Jews who are very familiar with the New Testament uh, and would know, maybe even more than a lot of Baptists sitting in the pew, you know, who would, who would know and understand these things. So, Julie? Yes, yeah, for, well, for sure, there would be a work of the Spirit, just like He does for all of us, to, to <clears throat> help the scales to fall off, yes, to help us to see, um, see and to understand the truth, yeah, yeah.
Can I see another hand, Harold? Yeah, that's a good question. So we recognize there's a unique sense in which the Spirit is present on the earth because He uh, resides in God's people. And so as, uh, as we, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, and so there is a unique sense. So this is, a, this is a really good question. If the rapture happens before the tribulation, does this mean the nature of the Spirit's relationship changes as well? Um, sort of. I, I would liken it more to an Old Testament way in which the Spirit worked. However, I, I do believe, though, where God's people then, when they get saved and, and become the people of God, they would still be given the Spirit, just like we are given the Spirit when we are saved. There would be nothing that would limit that, I, I don't think. I don't think there's anything about this, but it's, it's the right question to ask. And um, that the Spirit then would would become the possession of the believer, um, even in this time. And, uh, you know, I, I think then God's people will gather and um, worship and function in a, in a churchly way during the tribulation period. How do they get to heaven? They have to, to believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm being sassy with you. you um... But, ex- but, uh, but explain the question further. What do you mean? How do... Of course, if they got killed by the Antichrist, they're going to be in heaven. Yes. If they live till the end, are they raptured too? Or they just get, God just gives them new bodies at the end? Yeah, so that, so that, that is a good question. What will be uh, the experience of believers who are alive during the tribulation, who make it through the whole thing? Probably a pretty small number, but nonetheless, make it through the whole thing, and, and get into the millennial kingdom, we'll deal with that when we get to that section. What else are you doing? You'll be here. Um, you know, so, I mean, in a year, is that right? We'll be, we'll be done in easily 10 months. This will be done in 10 months, easily. Nine-ish. Dennis, I did not say if it was going to be in a row or not. See, this is a guy who's been around too many pastors. Uh, he knows how they work. Man, I thought I had you. Um, but no, really though, so that is a good question. It's one that gets asked. In fact, it's one that gets, it's a part of the challenge to the pre-tribulation rapture view. And it's a good one, quite frankly. Um, how then do, how does that then work for believers? Because the post-tribulation view takes care of that, Right? Then, then everybody, everybody then you know um, in, enjoys then this this um, translation of the of the human condition into the that which is fitting for heaven. Uh, and what I'll, what I what I'll suggest and maybe argue for a little bit more in detail when we get to it. In all seriousness, when we get to that section, um, would be more of a translation akin to what ha- whatever happened to Enoch and whatever happened to Elijah. So we do, we do have a couple of Old Testament examples of this happening, people getting to heaven in ways other than just dying. Um, granted, they're rare, but um, could, could, could offer us some tag. So, Margie?
Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So I, I, the, I, I think there, there will be this, um, this, the, the, the work of the Spirit. But, but I think the point, though, is still, you know, well stated. It, it will take on a different kind of flavor. That there is very, there's very specific promises related to the church, and the, again, us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that being a part of God's work now. And so during the tribulation, I, I think there may be some unique ways in which the Spirit ministers that might have some distinctions from... But you're right, though. I mean, he, he's, he's an e- e- eternal, omnipresent uh, you know, person of the Trinity, and so they're therefore able to, to work and to move. Yeah, yeah. Now, but any other questions? Because I want to I close out the fourth one, and the next week we'll jump into chapter 9. And the, the only thing I want to bring up is this, the, the way this ends in such a heavy manner, the way chapter 8 ends in such a heavy manner, um, say, you know, the, this, this statement of woe, and he says it three times, right? The angel flies, flies through the midst of heaven, says with a woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And that, that's going to be a tag that'll show up with the next three. The, the woe is pronounced on trumpets five, six, and seven. So you just let that, you know, just let that sink in. That after all they've seen to this point, now an angel says, whoa, it, this is about, now, now it's going to be really bad to be on the earth. Seems like it was bad before. So it is a way to describe, by the way, the intensity of God's judgment. It's a way to describe what is, well, what is called the great day of God's wrath. What is the fullness of the wrath of God being poured out on a rebellious world. And, and again, in all of this, in all that we are talking about, it's always good that we come back to fundamental things regardless of nuances and different ways you may take this part and that part. An undeniable biblical feature of the end is God judging as he promised he would. Ultimate justice coming to a rebellious earth. Inescapable. No one gets away with it. No one gets away with it. Might feel like on this earth they do, but no one gets away with it. God's day is coming. And that, and it, that will be uh, unmistakable unbelievers will absolutely know. We've already seen it in the seals. They wanted to flee from the wrath of the Lamb in chapter 6. They will know this is God's judgment. They will know who is doing it. They will know why He's doing it. And they will know they have no recourse in and of themselves from it. So, again, it'll, it'll be unmistakable. And this is important to keep in mind. This is part of what is going on. God's wrath being poured out. This is on the one hand, at the same time, God being faithful to keep His promises. All right, next week, we'll do it again. Let me pray for us. Father God, we do thank You for the gathering of Your people. We are, we are privileged to have been able to gather as Your people on this Lord's Day to establish our hearts and minds in Your Word and in worship and committing ourselves to being a people who glorify and honor You. We thank You for the week that lays out before us. And we thank you that even as we study prophecy, if we trust you with the end of all things, surely we can trust you with Monday, and surely we can trust you with the week that is before us. 
God, I, I do not say that flippantly. We, we might face difficult realities and hard circumstances, and, and we need wisdom. We confess we do not have it. It does not come naturally to us. We are grateful, though, that your word promises to give it and that it is given to us by a work of your spirit and as we read your word. So may we be wise as we walk in obedience to you this week, being a people who glorify you as our great and mighty God. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.